You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Is God male or female? What do you think? Any takers? It's a loaded question. We have somebody saying C. There was only he. Oh, he, he. It's a lot of pronouns, he, right? You know, in Genesis, Genesis chapter one opens uh, after, the, after the telling of the first, the first five days and the first half of the six, it says, and then... God said, let us make mankind in our image. Very interesting. God is speaking in the plural in the first person. Let us create mankind in our image. And so God created mankind in God's image, male and female. God created them. This is the Genesis 1 passage before we get the Genesis 2 passage with Eve coming from Adam's rib. Why do I bring that up today on Mother's Day? Because I think that it's been lost on us, particularly in the West, this idea that God actually has in his dynamic personality two halves, male and female. And in the actual being of who God is, we actually, we believe, we believe the text to be somewhat authoritative as far as orienting us to reality we understand that in God's personhood, there's this dynamic, these halves of male and female. That's why it's fireworks when you get two of them together, you know? Any married people out there, it's like, amen, you know? I feel that. Why would I bring that up on Mother's Day? Well, because it is Mother's Day, and I realize that Mother's Day can be somewhat of a taboo subject, particularly if it has been, you know, if you've had not a great relationship or haven't had the experience of being a mother or whatever the, the, the plurality of reasons may be. People be like, yeah, man, I'm really nervous. I can't believe we're talking about this stuff right now. <clears throat> but the thing is, there is a maternal nature to God that is in every woman. And the church believes that whether you're as barren as Sarah or as fertile as Mary, not even needing the help of a man to have a baby, that was kind of like an immaculate conception joke. It didn't go over as well as I had hoped that it would. No matter where you are on the spectrum, the church understands that if you're a woman, you ought to be demonstrating God's maternal nature in the world because we live in a world that is in desperate need of love and compassion and empathy and discipleship and nurturing. And so this day, although although it's a Hallmark holiday, if you're a woman, I just want to say to you, be a mother, baby, to this world that is in desperate need of you if your kids don't treat you as well as they ought to on this day, forget about it. You gotta be on mission in the world because you have a dynamic part of God's personhood in you. His image is in you and the world needs you. So happy Mother's Day to you, all right? Happy Mother's Day. 
All right. Uh, today we're talking about godly leadership. I'm not a leadership guru. I don't get invited to speak at large leadership conferences, but the passage today in Nehemiah is a passage about leadership. And so we're talking about leadership, okay? When's, when is it most difficult to lead in a project? At the beginning, in the middle, or at the end? What do you think? Any taker? Somebody says all of the above. That's a cheating answer, isn't it? I, I, would, I would say the middle. I, I, I think that at the beginning, there's, all, there's usually a lot of optimism when you're beginning a great project. Furthermore, when you're trying to garner the support of sponsors or funders, you can say anything at the beginning of the project. Oh yeah, we'll throw some of that in there too. That's a great idea, you know? Oh yeah, no, it'll definitely look like that. Oh, I love that. The colors, that's a great idea. Yeah, no, that's good. What's that? Oh yeah. You know, and this is, I mean, honestly, People have, this, this is the reason that people leave churches, you know, they donate the money to the, to the campaign, you know, and, you know, Jill over here has talked to the pastor. She says, we're going purple carpet, you know, and Nancy is, you know, giving more money over here. And she says, we're going orange. They come in on the last day and it's orange carpet, right? It's like, ah, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy. It's easy to garner support on the front end, Right. And at the end, at the end of a project, you know, it's easy to lead people at the end because they can see the progress and they can see that it's almost done. It's been very difficult, you know, in the village of Elida, kind of getting this school built, you know, and all the things that have gone into it. I'm not trying to get into the politics of the community of Elida, but the thing is, it's a beautiful building, right? And now everybody's like, let's get in there, right? I mean, everybody's just like, all gung-ho, we're, we're going to be in there by the end of this summer. How cool is that, you know? But in the middle of a project, when money's not adding up and, and people are upset and they're exhausted because day in and day out, you don't see the, the end result of your work, it's tough to be a leader. And this is where Nehemiah is. This is where we find him in the project. They're in the middle of building the wall. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter five. We're gonna pick up this archaic leader where we've left him in the middle of building the wall. Okay, this is verse one, Nehemiah chapter five. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. And these complaints, this is Nehemiah talking. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, as far as we were able, we have brought back our Jewish kindred who had been sold to the nations, but now you are selling your own kin who must then be bought back by us. 
So in the exile, there was this sense that, that the people of Israel, as they had lost any sense of political authority or security in the region, their people, family members had been sold as slaves. So in coming back to rebuild the wall, there was also some of this buying back of people from other nations so that they might come back to Israel to rebuild the wall. Okay. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop this taking of houses and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say, and I called the priests and made them take an oath to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus, may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I want to recap in case you snoozed off there in that passage. Uh, Nehemiah is observing that in the community that although people are related, although they're all Israelites, some of them are very poor. Some of them are having to remortgage their property in order to pay their taxes and in order to buy groceries. Furthermore, the rich Israelites in the community are the ones giving those people the mortgages and they're making money off of the high interest rates that they're charging them. They're making profits off of their, not only their neighbors, but their kin, their kin. And it seems to Nehemiah that these people, these wealthy people in the community are indifferent to the situation of the poor people. I'm gonna stop right there. This right here might be the sermon for some of you, the whole sermon right here. Indifference leads to evil and godlessness. Indifference. Indifference is being unmoved by the situation of another. Indifference is allowing yourself to be completely unaffected by another situation. Do you remember week one in Nehemiah? We talked about Nehemiah's emotion. Nehemiah's emotional response to his brother Hanani is what started this whole story off in the first place. Part of the reason that Nehemiah is such a great leader is that Nehemiah is not indifferent. He hates indifference. Nehemiah is a man of great empathy, a leader of great empathy. And he recognizes here the sin of indifference. I told you that this sermon was a sermon about leadership, not about indifference. I wanna tell you something. When you're a leader, you don't have the option of being indifferent. Do you wanna breed resentment leaders among those that follow you? If you wanna breed resentment amongst those that follow you, be indifferent to their situation. 
Go on vacation when everybody's doing really important work, right in the middle of it, just take a, take a break. That's how you breed in resentment. Or just let time go without checking in on those people that are under you. Demonstrating that you, at the end of the day, don't really care. <laughs> the greatest sin that you can commit as a leader is indifference. And Nehemiah is a great leader, is a great godly leader because he's not indifferent. It's his care for his people that motivates him. Leaders, your care for your people ought to be your primary motivator. You might've started the business because you wanted to be the best at one thing. The minute you started employing people, that became the second, less, the, the second most important agenda. Your people became the, the moment you employed your first person, those people became the most important thing the most important asset that you have in your company, leaders. I, I, love, I love Nehemiah and, and his leadership because it is, it is his care for others that motivates him. He cares so much that he calls the Israelites together and he calls them out. Look back at verse nine. This is my favorite phrase in all of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says this, the thing you are doing is not good. The thing you are doing, it is not good. I love this phrase. I love it. Do you have anybody in your life that says to you, that thing you are doing, it is not good? Anybody? If you don't have a person in your life that says to you, that thing you're doing, it is not good, you're in a very dangerous place. You're gonna have, you're gonna have a difficult time actually being a Christian leader, if you don't have people surrounding you, saying to you, with the, well, uh, people around you that are courageous enough to say to you, hey, that thing that you're doing, it is not good. Um, one of my favorite elements of my um, own marriage and one of the most frustrating is the fact that I'm married to someone who does say to me, that thing you are doing, <laughs> it is not good. <laughs> to which I usually say, uh, you're right. Oh man. Yeah. You got me again. Okay. This is all right. Um, godly leadership cannot be characterized by indifference. I don't know if maybe in this time of COVID we've be because we've become so separate and isolated from one another. Maybe we don't know in Christian community how to in a healthy way, call people out. Maybe we're anxious to do that. Now I understand it's not always good to just call somebody out and it's probably never good to call somebody out in public, um, particularly if you've not had a conversation with them one-on-one. -on -one. But some of you I think need to have the courage to stand up in the little communities that you're a part of or in your families. So I'm gonna coach you right now, okay? On how to, on how to call people out in a godly way, okay? I want you to repeat after me. You don't get it. Repeat after me. That thing that you are doing, it is not good. There it is. That's, just stop repeating now. We don't need to repeat anymore. That's it. That's it. That's Nehemiah's line. That's his approach to godly confrontation. And sometimes we need somebody that's just willing to say that, you know? That thing you're doing, it's not good. I wanna, I wanna keep going. 
Uh, this is, so I'm gonna start and pick back up the story in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Anaxerxes, 12 years, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took food and wine from them besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I devoted myself to the work on this wall and acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the other nations around us. Now that which was prepared for one day was one ox and six choice sheep. That's hundreds of pounds of meat. I mean, he's feeding a lot of people. And also fowls were prepared. I like to think those were chicken wings. And I would prefer the, the sweeter kind. I'm not into the buff, the hot buffalo. In case you're ever wanting to bring your pastor chicken wings, not the hot stuff, just give me the, the sweeter stuff, okay? And every 10 days, skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I love Nehemiah's example here. He's a selfless leader. He realizes that although he could take the governor's food allowance, although he's entitled to that pension, taking that pension would mean taking money out of the pockets of the people that need it the most, right? In taxes. So what does he do? He doesn't take the pension. Do you know what Nehemiah is primarily concerned with? Do you know what he's primarily concerned with? He's concerned with others. Do you know what he's not primarily concerned with? His own financial stability. Nehemiah as a leader is not primarily concerned with how much money he can make. He's not concerned with his own financial stability. You know, the thing that motivates Nehemiah is the relational stability of his community. That's what motivates Nehemiah. He's more concerned with the relational stability of the community than he is with his own financial stability. And this is the point in the text and reading where I just thought to myself, who thinks like that? You know, when was the last day you woke up to get ready for your nine to five grind? And you thought to yourself, you know what? I'm a part of a community that's relationally unstable right now. And so today, I'm going to leverage all of my resources in order to help bring people together. When was the last time you woke up and thought that thought? You know, we're having a breakdown in churches and families and communities these days because people are asking the question, what are these relationships doing for me? You know? 
I mean, this is not just great leadership advice. This is just great life advice. Those of you that kind of look around and you're like, I'm not getting treated the way that I should be treated. That's one question you could, or that's one statement you could make about yourself, you know? But, but I wonder to myself, how would those relationships change if you started sending, spending all of your energy in trying to redeem and help those relationships become what they could be, right? You know, in America, we've got, we, we've become incredibly isolated and COVID has only exacerbated the situation. We've become incredibly isolated. I mean, we, we raise children to kind of understand that their goal in the world is to get a job in which they can be independent and financially stable. Well, you know, what pro- you, know what, you know what problem you have when you move to a place where you don't know anybody for a job that you're told is going to make you financially stable and you lose the job? Brokenness happens, <laughs> you know? There are more important things for you to spend your time on than your financial stability. And Nehemiah, as a godly leader, demonstrates the thing that's most important is the relational stability of a community. And in order for him to have integrity in that community, you know what it meant? It meant for him not to take all the things that were entitled to him, particularly money. I'm convicted as I read this tale of Nehemiah. I just am. Now I recognize I'm not a senior, I'm not a senior leader of an organization. I've never been on top. I've never been the CEO of any organization I've been a part of. Been a lot of, um, been a part of several different universities and several different churches and have had influence, but I've never been on top. And so some of you may say to me, hey, Jonathan, you just wait till you're on top, buddy. It's gonna, you know, that's, that's gonna be a different, a different day. You're gonna see the way the world really works. Well, I'm telling the story right now about a guy who was on top and the way that his world worked is fundamentally different than the way that I see the world working right now, right? I'm, I'm convicted by this. What I've resolved after wrestling with this text this week is that I'm never going to lead an organization in which I make six figures and people that are giving their lives to that same organization in a full-time capacity are struggling to put food on their table because they have a single income. And I choose to take the big bucks while they make somewhere between you know 10 and $25 an hour or something like this. This story in Nehemiah is a story about leadership that hurts. It's a story about leadership that upsets the economic status quo. But it's also a story about building up a community. CEOs, I'm talking to the high level leaders here that, are, that are really have a lot of influence in your organizations. Uh, you wanna promote loyalty in your company, CEOs? People who are in high authority in your organizations? Walk into the office of the lowest paid full-time employee in your organization and say to them, hey, today you're getting a $10,000 raise because I see you and because you're giving your life that has the same image in God on it that mine does to this organization in a similar way to all of us getting paid more than you are. And you're getting a raise. You know what that person's gonna say? Sign me up for life, you know? Wow. I'm seen, I'm a human, you know? I realize, uh, I realize, I'm not a CEO, but I would challenge those of you that are, that are in places of significant power and authority. Again, you might think that I don't understand. 
and I might not, but I am right now halfway through a PhD program that is really difficult. And when I finish, I'm gonna have the highest terminal degree uh, in my field. But that degree is not going to serve for me as an entitlement to indulge myself in a salary that puts myself far above others in my community. That's not the point. And that's the conviction that God has given to me this week. This is what I'm taking out of the text of Nehemiah. God's forming my own heart. You know, there are people all along that have said to me, oh man, you'll get a PhD, then you'll be making you know, money, you know? That's not the point of my life. And it ought not to be the point of yours. You know, Nehemiah is more concerned with the relational stability of his community than he is his own personal financial stability. And as I was reading this text this week and just in wrestling with it, I couldn't help but thinking of Jesus, a parable that Jesus told. You know, Nehemiah is a guy that when the word of God comes to him, it fundamentally shifts and changes his life. And we ought to remember that Jesus was crucified, not, although yes, for the salvation of our souls, he was also crucified because he upset really powerful, influential people, particularly really powerful, influential, religious people. Doug last week made a statement about a lack of conviction about hell in our community. You know, that people outside of the church don't recognize kind of the dangers of hell. And I would agree with Doug that we have an incredible lack in our sense of hell theology in the church in North America. But do you know what, do you know who Jesus was talking to when he talked about hell? Rich people. The two people that Jesus, the two times that Jesus tells the most explicit, horrific stories about hell are times in which he's talking to religious rich people, not to people, not to people that we would consider sinners. Jesus's ministry was not, a, was not a ministry of converting people to Christianity. Jesus's ministry was a ministry of really reforming a religion that he, that he said you know, had become too overtly religious. So as in thinking about Jesus and thinking about this text in Nehemiah, I thought about this passage in Luke 19 that is very troubling. And I think that Doug is right. I think we should think a little bit more about hell and we in the church should think a little bit more about hell. So here it goes. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, the underworld, where he was being tormented. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, oh no, he's called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things. During your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, 
and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do, do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, bro, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. I mean, have you not read those books? I mean, they're pretty full of this, you know. I mean, Nehemiah, had, have you had him read Nehemiah? You know, he said to them, um, no, Father Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, we're back to, back to the rich man. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, I mean, can you imagine, you know, if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will surely repent then, you know, that'll be really impressive, you know, it'll kind of really get their attention, it'll be jarring, you know. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody raised from the dead, you know? I'm sure that we would change our ways if, you know, somebody came from the dead, okay. <laughs> he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. We have Moses and the prophets We've got problems. And I think Moses and the prophets could help us with our problems. That's why we're reading through Nehemiah. <laughs> this is a convicting passage. I want you to know, I did not ask to preach on Nehemiah 5 on Mother's Day, okay? I just want you to know that. Several weeks back, somebody said, hey, you preach on May 9th. I'm like, that sounds, that sounds fine. A couple of weeks ago, I realized... May 9th is Mother's Day, and it's Nehemiah 5 is the text. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, can I get out of this? It's like, no, nobody else is going to do this one. You know, it's like, okay. The main thesis of Jesus' preaching ministry was not converting people to Christianity. And I'd love to have a conversation with you about that if you feel otherwise. This is a place where we've completely missed the mark, which that's the New Testament definition of sin, by, by the way, is completely missing the mark. We in the church have completely missed the mark by trying to tell people that if they pray a prayer to ask Jesus to come into their heart, then somehow they have a guarantee of eternal bliss when they die. It's not true. And Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew 25, there's gonna be a lot of people that come to him at the end and they say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and your name cast out demons. And he's gonna say, I never knew you. Why didn't you have people read Luke 19 and Nehemiah 5? When the separation of the sheep and the goats, the moment, the, the moment we find the most horrific picture of hell, a lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels, we find a bunch of religious people being thrown into it to their surprise. Part of the point of the message today, quite honestly, is that you not be caught at the judgment with your pants down. This is the call of God to us. It is socially awkward. It is socially awkward that the church in North America has as much wealth and as much influence as it does and that we don't do more. Now, I'm, 
I'm not standing here. The point of my message today is not to is not to prescribe. Um, uh, I, um, I, I realize some of you some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, "Give us, give us, you know, a big thing. What can we all give our money to?" You know, the fact of the matter is, Jesus does come to us individually, and there are some of you that that I'm speaking to you, and, and you're and and you already know. For you, it is your organization, and you're thinking to yourself, "I am." I am living so well and I tell somebody in my organization that I'm praying for them, but really what they need is a $10,000 raise and I could very easily give it to them, right? For some of you, that's the call today. It's very simple. For some of you, the call may be kind of that first half, this idea that we spend our lives worrying so much about our own financial stability that the pursuit of that financial stability is keeping us from pursuing the most important thing, the relational stability of our community and of relationships. Your kids don't want your money, they want your heart. They want your time. Don't don't tell me that it's gonna be great when you retire. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I believe that I believe that God is doing an amazing thing in the church in North America. I believe it. I believe that God 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 wants to move among us, and I, and I believe I've I've been seeing signs of it already that He wants to move with power. But are we willing to be the godly leaders in this secular secular world? And quite honestly, in many senses as we become a more and more secularized religion, (laughs) are we the ones that are gonna be willing to say, I'm willing to take less. I'm willing to not be entitled. I'm willing to be more concerned. I, not just willing, I am more concerned with, with the relational stability of my community and my own integrity in that community than I am with financial stability. And these are turbulent financial times. I know, it's weird, right? prices of housing, construction materials, stock market. It's just, you know, I think we are all financially kind of on edge right now. Nobody really knows what's going on. You got all these like, you know, financial prophets saying different things. You know what? That's not primarily the business of the church. Furthermore, I want to say something else to you. Nehemiah is not worried about his own independent financial stability because he knows that in taking care of the community, he's always gonna have stability. This is the church, right? We were talking in foundations several months ago about kind of life insurance and the concept of life insurance. And one guy floated, one guy floated uh, the idea. He said, you know, I pay a lot for life insurance because I'm worried, you know, if I were to die, what would happen to my kids? And he looked us all in the eye where several of us dads were talking. He said, what if I canceled what if I canceled my life insurance? You guys love me that much? Could I stop paying so much for life insurance because you guys would take care of me? It's kind of a jarring question. <laughs> you know, we're like, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. We do, hey, we do independent financial planning here, my man. This is not a, you know, this isn't group stuff. You know, I, I, I'm taking care of mine, you take care of yours, you know. But it was a compelling question. It was one, it was one that really kind of brought about a lot of conversation. What are we doing in Christian community? How are we caring for each other? right? Nehemiah wasn't concerned for his stability down the road because he knew that he was building a community that would last. 
They were forging their relationships in the fire of the work of rebuilding the wall against all odds, you know? And some investments are just worth uh, pouring everything that you have into them. That is, that is what we're hoping to do in the church. It's create a community that's a light for the world, that's attractive, that people see the sincerity and genuineness of our faith because of it. My prayer is that we would be people with great integrity in these days, incredible selflessness and godly leadership. Will you stand with me? Lord, we have been a people of many entitlements. Lord, would you break us of them? Would you help us to see our lives as gifts? Would you help us to see all that we have, not as just a result of hard work, but as a result of your incredible generosity to us? Change our minds and change our hearts. Take our hearts of stone, give us hearts of flesh. Pour out your spirit on your people, we pray. May the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart, may they be pleasing to you, O God. You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and we worship you. Amen. I pray that this week you'll have the courage to be godly leaders to resist the temptation of entitlements, to resist the temptation of indifference, but to follow after God as his ambassadors in this world. Go in his peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.